847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's work, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. As this is the first episode of the new year, I'd like to welcome everyone to 2020. I hope everyone is staying safe and healthy in these unfortunately uncertain times. The podcast was placed in a bit of a hiatus recently, but I'm attempting to return with new episodes on some neat topics and some interviews that should, with luck, be both engaging and illuminating. So during the recent hiatus, I was reflecting on subjects for upcoming episodes, considering what else I might want to cover for uh, various composer spotlights, film and TV series overviews, and an interview or two. One conclusion that I reached was that perhaps I could include a few more personal topics for some episodes, uh, akin to what was the primary focus of my blog, uh, also called The Score to Settle, way back uh, when I created it in uh, 2013. I thought back to this beginning uh, when I was essentially writing a personal memoir centered around specific soundtracks that connected with memorable incidents in my life, both good and bad. And Possibly the most notable and one of the earliest blog entries uh, concerned my late father and the film music which connected he and I. Last year, 2019, was the 25th anniversary of his passing, uh, November of 1994 to be more precise, uh, when he passed away very unexpectedly. In an effort to celebrate his memory and his meaning to my life uh, both then and now, I decided to devote an episode of the podcast to my dad and the movie music that he enjoyed and introduced to me, um, along with some anecdotes. Hopefully you'll forgive me if I tear up at any time. Now, first and foremost, my dad was a big-time music lover, spanning many genres. He was born in the early 1940s and developed an interest in big band, jazz, and crooners of that era, and his record album collection reflected this, uh, yet also included a great deal of classical music, pop and R&B of the 60s and 70s, disco, and even organ music, much to my mother's chagrin. Apparently, it was the blaring organ music that motivated her to purchase my dad some high-quality earphones back in the day. In addition, he loved movies. He loved going to the movies uh, and planning movie nights at home, all varieties. In a way, he might have inadvertently stirred the beginnings of my fascination with film music, the big symphonic variety, uh, bolstered by the fact that as a seven-year-old, I already loved the orchestra and listened to classical music radio stations. On those movie nights at home, my dad's choice of screening Alfred Hitchcock's suspense classics introduced me to composer Bernard Herrmann. While historical epics like Lawrence of Arabia brought me to composer Brice Jar. All the early James Bond flicks led me to John Barry. Comedies like The Pink Panther got me into Henry Mancini. (laughs) 
And war movies like Patton boosted Jerry Goldsmith onto my list of favorites. Surprisingly, there weren't very many westerns that we watched. I'm not sure why now that I think about it. And only a smattering of science fiction. Now, while soundtracks in general weren't a huge part of his album collection, uh, what I've listed were a number of examples of movie music that caught my father's ear and uh, remained favorites of his. Once my own deep fascination with the art form began emerging in the 1980s and onward, it became a point of connection for me and my dad. Spotlighting Henry Mancini for a moment, he could be considered the first movie and TV composer that gained fame among the general public, thanks to music, uh, his music for popular TV shows like Peter Gunn and movies like Breakfast at Tiffany's, so much so that almost every family in the 1960s seemed to own at least one of his record albums, and my father for sure owned a number of them. The soundtrack LP of Mancini's music for the 1959 TV series Mr. Lucky was one such album that he owned and played often, along with other Mancini albums of jazz and pop standards. Mr. Lucky was a show concerning a floating casino and its colorful visiting gamblers, and was produced by director Blake Edwards, who would collaborate with Mancini many times during their respective careers, most famously on the aforementioned Pink Panther film franchise. So here is that main theme from the TV show Mr. Lucky, as composed by Henry Mancini. Henry Mancini's main theme for the 1959 TV show, Mr. Lucky. It has an easygoing, swinging style that fit well with the jazz and big band music that my dad loved, as I did as well, um, extending out to the music that I eventually discovered of uh, John Barry, Elmer Bernstein, and Lalo Schifrin in their film and TV scores. In fact, not too long before my dad passed away, um, he asked me if two Mancini LPs that he owned had ever been reissued on CD. Now, I wasn't sure. This was 1994, pre-internet days, so searching for this type of information was terrible, and it wasn't even a foregone conclusion that 1960s easy-listening titles were all getting re-released on CD. The LPs that he inquired about were called, the first one was The Blues and the Beat, the second one was Mancini 67. I actually did eventually locate these both on CD a number of years later. They're really wonderful collections of Mancini tunes, and I'm glad my dad brought them to my attention. I have fond memories of him playing them often um, in the house on his uh, his turntable. 
So while these aren't technically soundtracks, here is a great example to keep that swinging mood going after Mr. Lucky. This is a track called Satin Doll from the album Mancini 67. Another aspect of my father that I wanted to share with you is that he was a pilot in the Navy during the late 60s and early 70s, stationed at bases mostly along the East Coast, uh, eventually earning the rank of lieutenant commander, and thankfully, amazingly, not deployed to Vietnam. Now, I'm not sure whether all who serve in the military wind up being fans of war films, but it certainly was the case with my dad, uh, especially if those films heavily featured aircraft of any sort, you know, anything with those magnificent men and their flying machines. He had recorded uh, many of these uh, movies from TV airings onto Betamax tapes on our beta tape player format he invested in early. Betamax, if for anyone who doesn't know, was beat out by VHS. Three of these movies in the war genre that he asked me to watch with him specifically for the music was Where Eagles Dare, The Blue Max, and Patton. These were, of course, new to me at the time, but I think my father hoped that they would impress me as the burgeoning film music fan. First up is Ron Goodwin's main title for Where Eagles Dare from 1968, a covert mission-oriented World War II set film starring uh, Richard Burton and a young Clint Eastwood. Ron Goodwin was a popular British composer um, at the time, often hired for movies about war and heroism due to his ability to write inspiring and robust melodies, often punctuated by staccato brass and percussion accents. Interestingly, his main theme for Where Eagles Dare is more brooding and determined than bright and soaring, um, which is actually befitting the demeanor of the lead characters anyway. Percussion and brass occupy the center stage here still, uh, with the snares almost sounding like Morse code. So here is Ron Goodwin's main title for the 1968 war thriller, Where Eagles Dare.
remember being surprised at how long of a movie Where Eagles Dare actually is. Not that it isn't enjoyable, because it is, but for a mission thriller, uh, it even has an intermission. Uh, now, an intermission is great for musical reasons. I just find it kind of funny since, um, as a movie, it's only 10 minutes longer than the action hit Mission Impossible Fallout, where we didn't get an intermission. This was, of course, from the era when films were presented more akin to live theater performances, uh, including overtures and entre-acts, lengthy run times, and, and just overall treated as an experience for an entire evening uh, for the audience in attendance. And speaking of lengthy movies, next up for me on my father's screening list was Patton, a biopic on the famed World War II General George S. Patton from 1970, starring George C. Scott, and it is a three-hour juggernaut of a film, yet with only 30 minutes of score provided by the inimitable Jerry Goldsmith. Goldsmith's sparsely spotted music is a brilliant musical evocation of the complicated man himself, with echoplexed trumpets representing Patton's belief in reincarnation, a pipe organ representing his religiosity, and the march, the most famous uh, part of the score, representing his military bluster. Here's the main title from Patton, summarizing those three elements in a perfectly rounded musical statement. So again, this is the main title of Patton, composed by Jerry Goldsmith. I had mentioned that my dad was a pilot when he served in the Navy, uh, but he wasn't involved in any sort of aggressive actions, but instead flew planes into hurricanes for storm tracking, as nutty as that might seem, uh, with a squadron called the Hurricane Hunters. I wish I had bothered him for more tales from that chapter of his life, uh, but in typically youthful folly, I assumed I had more than enough time. I wish I knew what it was that he loved about flying, because that love apparently stayed with him after he left the service. Uh, I think he really missed the exhilaration of this experience, especially flying single-engine uh, aircraft. Naturally, this leads me to his love of movies about flying, and a trio that he presented to me mainly for the music, uh, as before. First and foremost, there was The Blue Max uh, from 1966, starring George Pappard as a World War I-era German soldier who rises from the infantry ranks to the Air Corps and along the way turns into a completely arrogant ass. <laughs> the score is, again, by the legendary Jerry Goldsmith, and it's an absolute masterwork, uh, both from that decade of the 1960s but also overall in Goldsmith's career. It's a score driven almost single-mindedly by its magnificent main theme, uh, in the same way that Papard's character single-mindedly desires the honor of being bestowed the Blue Max Medal. 
Goldsmith's main theme is an ascending melody that arcs towards the heavens and one that really caught my dad's attention, uh, along with the copious amount of bravura flying sequences in the movie. So here is the main title for the Blue Max, as composed by Jerry Goldsmith. This is from a new recording, though, by the Prague Philharmonic Orchestra, available on Tadlow Records. So that was the main title for the 1966 film, The Blue Max, music by Jerry Goldsmith. So after watching this movie with my dad, I, uh, I found a copy of the soundtrack album in my college music library. This would be uh, UNC Chapel Hill in North Carolina. And um, in listening to that soundtrack album, um, I discovered that there was more amazing music written for the film uh, that actually went uh, unused, which is such a shame because it's all really brilliant music. Uh, I wasn't able to make a cassette copy of that album from the library at that time, but I so wanted to share this unheard music with my dad. I, I can only imagine that he would equally love it. Uh, thus, I was uh, overjoyed when, uh, in 1994, I had learned that uh, at that point, Sony Records was planning to release the full score on CD early the next year. And I recall during a visit home from college uh, that uh, I was relaying this news to my dad as we walked around outside the house. At that time, uh, the family lived in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Um, And I excitedly relayed the news to him that there would be all this music from the movie available on CD, uh, even music he hadn't heard because it wasn't used in the movie. Unfortunately, uh, he passed away before the CD release happened, and I was never really able to share all of this marvelous score with him. Uh, I really wanted his thoughts on it. After he passed away, I I watched his VHS copy of The Blue Max often, uh, even beginning to notice that my dad bore a slight resemblance to George Pappard. Uh, to this day, every time I listen to Jerry Goldsmith's score for The Blue Max, uh, my emotions and feelings uh, turn towards my father. Uh, I like to imagine him listening to it alongside uh, alongside me. Here is one of those great cues from the score that went almost completely unused in the final film. Uh, This is a cue called The Bridge from the Blue Max. Thank you. 
The next movie about flying that uh, had a great score, which my dad shared with me, was a movie called 633 Squadron, 1964, starring Cliff Robertson, which is an exciting World War II set picture involving British RAF pilots tasked with bombing a German fuel factory. For the music, we revisit Ron Goodwin, who in this project, in stark contrast to Where Eagles Dare, was indeed able to compose a soaring, exultant score. It's full of rat-a-tat trumpets and percussion accents, along with bold lines for horns and strings. So here is that main title uh, for the movie 633 Squadron from 1964, composed by Ron Goodwin. Lastly, from this trio of favorite movies about men and their flying machines, is the uh, genial, inspirational uh, 1957 film The Spirit of St. Louis, directed by the great Billy Wilder and starring James Stewart as Charles Lindbergh. Uh, The film uh, chronicles uh, Lindbergh's world record-setting solo nonstop flight uh, from New York to Paris in 1927. In much the same way that Castaway was for Tom Hanks in 2000, The Spirit of St. Louis is mainly a solo vehicle, pardon the pun, for Jimmy Stewart as an actor, as we spend so much time with him um, alone in the plane's cockpit. Uh, Now, the score is by the brilliantly talented Franz Waxman, a Golden Age powerhouse that I had covered in a previous episode of the podcast. I believe I had even included some of his music from this movie, Waxman escaped wartime Germany in the 1930s, uh, immigrating to the United States, and specifically to Hollywood for composing gigs. His score for The Spirit of St. Louis was another favorite of my dad's. The theme ascends, the main theme, uh, it ascends in a direction similarly to Goldsmith's for The Blue Max, or I should say vice versa. Um, And it's a melody that feels like it could effortlessly lift you right off the ground. Um, Here is a great cue from the score uh, for Spirit of St. Louis called Nova Scotia.
That was the cue Nova Scotia from Franz Waxman's score for the 1957 movie The Spirit of St. Louis, a favorite score of my father's, and the last of three films that he introduced to me so that I could absorb the music. So I've talked about my dad's love of music, uh, the many genres that that encompassed, his love of movies, focusing on the military and aircraft subject matter specifically, and his time in the Navy. Uh, But another recurring integral ingredient in my early life, thanks to my father, were extensive and patience-building road trips. As a family, we moved every few years, both before and after I was born, resulting in my sisters and I each being born in a different state. Now, instead of flying commercial, it was more common then to simply trudge across country in a station wagon when moving, or when visiting extended family for the holidays. Now, we never lived near any grandparents, uncles, uh, aunts, etc. to make an easy day trip. Thus, countless hours were spent in cars, whether moving state to state or visiting the aforementioned extended family, uh, with my dad at the wheel 90% of the time. Uh, This meant lots of time for my sisters and I to get on each other's nerves, but also a lot of time for listening to music together. This is when I was exposed to the diversity of my dad's taste in music and his admirable ability back in the day to make a pretty stellar mixtape, a talent that lives on in me, I think, even if represented digitally. Eventually, as my sisters and I grew up, we were all allowed to play some of our own favorites during these trips, and I was always excited and nervous for my turn. I really wanted my dad's approval for whichever soundtrack I unleashed on the family, Now, he usually requested anything James Bond, Star Wars, or Star Trek, and on most occasions, I happily obliged. In those dawning years of my soundtrack collection, I only owned one James Bond-themed album, and it wasn't even an original soundtrack album. It was an album of re-recorded highlights by Roland Shaw and his orchestra. Roland Shaw, I found out later, was a British composer and arranger who released many popular records in the 60s and 70s that were new instrumental recordings of movie themes, mostly James Bond and uh, spy-related. It was all I could find in the small record stores in small towns with even smaller soundtrack sections. What I found really admirable about these albums is that not only was Shaw including instrumentals of the big main themes like Goldfinger and Thunderball, but also select score cues as well from John Barry's music for the movies, like the uh, Fort Knox sequence in Goldfinger. And often the performances are just as invigorating as the original film recordings. One of my favorites is Roland Shaw's version of John Barry's own 007 theme. Now, for anyone who may not know, this is not the James Bond theme that uh, was composed by Monty Norman and then uh, that John Barry arranged, but this is more of a straightforward, adventurous theme uh, that Barry composed um, for and used in a few of the early films, such as From Russia with Love and, um, and Moonraker. This is Roland Shaw's version of 007, as composed by John Barry.
That was John Barry's composition called 007, as performed by Roland Shaw and his orchestra. Now, my dad had also been a casual Star Trek fan, uh, mainly just for the TV shows and the movies. In fact, my first Star Trek memory is uh, the whole family making time to see Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, uh, in the movie theaters in 1982. I was much more of a Star Wars kid at that point, but I became so enamored of the Starship Enterprise, as seen in that movie, that once we got back home, I crafted my own uh, sort of ramshackle model of it out of cardboard. That was pretty much all I had available to me for building materials. Now, my father uh, actually really responded to to, uh, Jerry Goldsmith's epic score for the first film of this series, uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture, released in 1979 and directed by Robert Wise. Uh, Goldsmith's music was uh, pretty much universally praised um, and garnered an Oscar nomination, um, the main theme uh, becoming almost as popular as Alexander's Courage's main theme for the original series, especially once it was um, reused for uh, the Star Trek Next Generation TV series that started in 1987, which kind of brought uh, Goldsmith's motion picture march back into the uh, public frame. Now, for anyone who might need a quick refresher on Jerry Goldsmith's main theme for Star Trek The Motion Picture, uh, here it is in the main title for that film. the main title cue from Jerry Goldsmith's score for Star Trek The Motion Picture from 1979. So there is one small anecdote relating to the soundtrack for Star Trek The Motion Picture that I wanted to share, since this is an episode centering on personal anecdotes. There was one particular road trip where we as a family had wrapped up listening to the soundtrack for Star Trek The Motion Picture. I I think that had been my selection to play. Um, and my dad had asked a follow-up question, which I hadn't really been expecting. And this showed me how uh, little I had underestimated uh, how closely he was paying attention, actually. <laughs> he asked me, where was the music when at the end of the movie they were all walking towards V'ger? Uh Which, if anyone hasn't seen the movie, it's sort of the main protagonist. Now, for some context, in those days of, uh, of movie music released on LP and cassette, there was usually only enough space for 40 to 45 minutes of music, meaning any given soundtrack album represented maybe half the amount of music actually heard in the film. This particular cue from Star Trek The Motion Picture was not included on that original album in 1979, much to my disappointment, as it's a very evocative, powerful piece of music um, and apparently even making an impression on my dad. At that age, not only was I overly concerned with impressing my father with what I liked, but I also hated to disappoint him and have him disapprove of my own interests. It isn't a healthy state of being, that's for sure. And so when he bellowed from the driver's seat of our family suburban to me, way in the back seat, asking about that cue, I simply lied and said, oh, it was on there, all because I thought if I told him the truth, he'd be disappointed in the soundtrack album, and by extension, be disappointed with me. Now, he just shrugged and casually responded, huh, I guess I missed it. Uh, 
uh, well, this is for you, Dad. Uh, this is that particular cue called Inner Workings from Star Trek The Motion Picture that was missing on the original album. That was the cue Inner Workings uh, from Jerry Goldsmith's score for 1979 Star Trek The Motion Picture. Uh, as heard on the three-disc set from the label La La Land Records. It's a great set uh, featuring the complete score from Star Trek The Motion Picture, plus alternates and the original 1979 album presentation. That was the cue that I mentioned that was not on the original 1979 album. Um, and I'm so happy that it actually is available to listen to now on the, uh, the set from La La Land Records. As my soundtrack collection expanded exponentially, I wanted to share more of my discoveries with my father, still angling for his approval, and maybe to introduce him to something new. The best opportunity surprisingly presented itself through the chunky metal braces straightening my teenage teeth over the course of three years. So you might recall how I mentioned we moved a lot as a family when I was growing up. Well, we moved again at the end of my ninth grade year in high school, so 10th grade was in a new town, new school. However, my braces still needed to be worn for one more year, and this resulted in a road trip once a month with my dad, returning to the previous town, and my orthodontist there. This was about an hour's drive away, and I anticipated it every single time. It essentially meant a half day out of school, uh, the drive there and back, and uh, lunch with my dad, which often included soft-serve ice cream. I mean, it was an uh, orthodontist visit, so I know ice cream is definitely required, and because, well, braces suck. My dad had this time uh, with me to talk and to listen to music, and he'd play classical or old standards, and uh, 
I, of course, would aim to audition some new soundtracks I'd brought along on cassette. But I had to be judicious um, in my selections. I knew that he wouldn't have the patience or interest in scores such as Alien or Hellraiser, um, anything of that ilk. At that time, though, James Horner uh, was ruler of my movie music world, and his richly melodic scores fell more in line with my father's own symphonic sound preferences. Uh, So Horner's music for 1989's Glory, The Land Before Time and Willow from 1988, and of course Star Trek's 2 and 3 were all well-received. Even if he he didn't always state this out loud, I, I think he still really liked the music. Hilariously enough, and this will be sort of an inside joke for my fellow film music nerds out there, one time my dad actually confused the end credits music uh, for James Horner's The Rocketeer with James Horner's music for Star Trek II, and honestly, I can't say I blame him. Anyway, I'd like to play the main title from Glory, as composed by James Horner, a score which I'm pretty sure my dad enjoyed and has always been a favorite of mine. So, as I noted at the top of the episode, 1994 was a major year for me, which I realize is an understatement seeing as how I lost my father that fall, but that wasn't something that I was aware would occur when the year began. During that summer, through a college program, I worked as an intern out here in Los Angeles on the old TV show Unsolved Mysteries, uh, where I learned all about weird UFO sightings and DEA cover-ups that didn't get aired. In addition, uh, that year, my favorite television series, Star Trek The Next Generation, was ending its seven-year run and was immediately migrating in November to the big screen as a major motion picture. This is important not only due to my father's Trek fandom, 
but also that we as a family watched the next generation together. Uh, so it was a comforting, consistent presence during my turbulent high school and college years. Now, for some context, Star Trek The Next Generation was a syndicated series and therefore not run on a national network. So if your local TV affiliate didn't order it, then you didn't see it. When we moved to Rocky Mountain in 1988 and discovered that The Next Generation wasn't yet being aired locally there, my father actually penned a letter to the editor of the Rocky Mountain newspaper championing the show and emphasizing what a quality program this new Trek series was and that it deserved to be broadcast. I remember reading his letter in the paper, surprised that he went to such lengths, as I didn't realize it had meant that much to him. Maybe it was simply the fact that the show had become a weekly ritual for us as a family. Maybe it was just that he hoped to see more of the exotic, raven-haired cast member Marita Sirtis every Saturday. Uh, I'll never know if this had any effect on the TV station or if the wheels already were in motion. But fairly soon, The Next Generation was being broadcast in Rocky Mount. So, uh, just in remembrance of that, I wanted to share one of my favorite cues from the show. Uh, This is actually from an episode called Evolution from Season 3. This is a cue called Double Star, composed by Ron Jones. So again, this is music from Star Trek The Next Generation. That was music from the TV show Star Trek The Next Generation, specifically uh, the Season 3 episode Evolution. Uh, that was a cue called Double Star. Uh, it's composed by Ron Jones, who was a composer who worked on four seasons uh, from that series. Now, I recall my dad actually revealing to me that The Next Generation had eclipsed the original series, in his opinion, uh, and had become his favorite. I think he might have found a kindred spirit in the learned, thoughtful character of Captain Jean-Luc Picard, as played by Patrick Stewart, and I can't say I blame him. When the Next Generation series finale closed out in a genuinely heartfelt fashion, the one consolation for me was that the cast transition to cinemas would occur in only a few months. Star Trek Generations, as directed by David Carson and starring Patrick Stewart and William Shatner, opened in theaters on Friday, November 18th, And this was about 11 days after my father had passed away. Upon seeing the film, I was unexpectedly struck by one of its overarching themes, that of dealing with the inevitable passing of time and the inescapable fact of losing loved ones. At the close of the film, Captain Picard espouses his view on loss, uh, what he's discovered through his life, um, mainly in that we should relish all moments and understand that what we have now won't ever return. I choked up at hearing this. I don't know if the lesson would have struck me as much if I hadn't just experienced such a loss of my own less than two weeks prior. Plus, I felt it doubly so since it originated from a next-generation movie, a movie I would have most certainly seen with my dad. Finality of that sort is tough to reconcile with, but in absorbing the message in generations, I... I really strive to enjoy my memories of my dad, uh, making them part of my present, and uh, really try not to focus on him on his absence. I'm sure he would have enjoyed Dennis McCarthy's music for Star Trek Generations, 
So to honor that, here's the cue called Jumping the Ravine from that film, again composed by Dennis McCarthy. My final conversation with my dad was over the phone about two weeks before his passing. As I mentioned, uh, I was still in college at the time. I'm so thankful that by that point in my life as a young man, I'd grown comfortable with ending all of our talks by saying I love you. It wasn't always that easy. But I now considered an amazing gift from God that those were the last words he'd heard from me when he was alive. As I grow older and further away from the days when he lived, it saddens me that my recollections dim, and I realize that my time with him uh, becomes less than the time without him. Before his passing, I'd crafted a 90-minute movie music mixtape for my dad, the first of what I'd hoped would be many. Side 1 consisted of Bernard Herrmann tracks such as North by Northwest and Taxi Driver, while Side 2 focused on Jerry Goldsmith, opening with music from the Blue Max and continuing on to Patton, Masada, and others, I made sure to include anything that was a march, as I know he'd love to listen to those most. I'm so bummed that I didn't own the score for The Spirit of St. Louis back then on disc, and I could have included that as well. And there's been so much fantastic music I've discovered since then that I wish he'd heard. I don't know what he thought or felt when he listened to that mixtape, I like to imagine him driving in his green Ford LTD, hearing the soaring strings of the Blue Max main theme, and feeling it transport him right back into the cockpit of his plane, dipping between ephemeral ivory clouds and the navy blue sky. I found this mixtape in his car and brought it with me to his wake. It was an open casket, uh, which is still one of the more unusual experiences I've had, but it allowed me the chance to stand before him. I placed my hand on his chest and slipped this mixtape into the casket beside him. I don't know why. Maybe to feel a lasting connection, a way to think he and I could still listen to this music together that we both enjoyed. I still prefer to picture him listening with me today. I want to thank everyone for listening through this episode. I realize that the focus might have seemed unusual in being so personal, but I felt it was important uh, to understand the people and events in our lives which make us and shape us. Um, who I am and what I love didn't develop in a bubble. So much is due to the collection of external influences, whether intentional or not. Take some time to offer thanks to those in your own lives who might have helped fashion you into the unique person you are now. Music in this episode is from the following films or TV shows. North by Northwest, composed by Bernard Herrmann. Lawrence of Arabia, composed by Maurice Jarre. The Blue Max, Patton, and Star Trek The Motion Picture, composed by Jerry Goldsmith. The Pink Panther, Mr. Lucky, and the track Satin Doll, by Henry Mancini. Glory, composed by James Horner. 
007, composed by John Barry, as performed by Roland Shaw and his orchestra. Where Eagles Dare and 633 Squadron, composed by Ron Goodwin. The Spirit of St. Louis, by Franz Waxman. Double Star, from Star Trek The Next Generation, the episode Evolution, composed by Ron Jones. And Star Trek Generations, composed by Dennis McCarthy. If you'd like to send any comments or questions, you can email the show at escortasettlepodcast at gmail.com, find the blog at escortasettle.blogspot.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash escortasettle, and on Twitter at score2settlepod, that's score the number two, settle pod. If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and review, that's always much appreciated. And, of course, the podcast is also available on Spotify. Thanks again for listening. 